Good morning, Grace Place family. I had advertised uh, this morning early on, uh, if you're watching online, that tune in, what's his name is back. So <laughs> it's been seven weeks. And Ron, uh, did you see a little bit of uh, like what God had spoke to you today across the, uh, he came and gave a prophetic word several weeks ago to me and says, I, I see that stage full of musicians and, and uh, people that are going to be glorifying God. Isn't that awesome, man? It's incredible what God's been doing. Amen. God speaks and uh, he carries out his word. Uh, today, before we get into the word, what we're going to talk about today, I have a couple of just thank yous uh, to do. One is the head of our mowing team. Josh, if you wouldn't mind coming up. You cannot even imagine uh, the hours this guy has put in over the last four or five weeks uh, in mowing the grass here. It's just unbelievable. So thank you so much. And we want to honor uh, our teachers. Uh, some of you have already started. There you go. I'll give that to you. Some of you have already started the endeavor. And for those of you in the Round Rock area and, and uh, some, uh, I think Austin too, is, is coming up. You're, you're going to be engaged. So we want to recognize you and, and ask you to come forward. We're going to pray over you. We have a gift card for you that will hopefully help you do something in your classrooms that uh, will be beneficial with your students. You know how it is nowadays. They, schools used to provide things, you know, like a chair or a desk. <laughs> a scotch tape, uh, scissors. Uh, they, do, they no longer provide a lot of those things. So you teachers have had to pull out of your pockets and we're hopeful that this little offering uh, from us to you will be a blessing and we wanna pray over you. So what do we got? Let's see, we have Kim Waugh. Kim, I, I hate to bring you up. She's doing such a great job up in the media. We have, uh, who do we have? Uh, Kim Oliveris, is she here this morning? Nope, okay, tuck that one back. Uh, Shay. She's, and, <laughs> we caught you with your donut. Kaylin, you might as well come too because we're getting you, all right? So I know you're in there. And who are we missing? Is that, is that everybody that's here? Okay, so we have a couple more, but they're not here this morning. Is Amelia here? She's, okay, all right. So we are grateful for you. We want to pray over you. And then I want to ask you, so I want to ask you to stand with me. We're going to pray over these teachers and God's anointing. But then we're all going to kind of turn towards that direction is where all of our kids are beyond that wall. And we're going to be praying for the kids too. So first of all, let's pray over our teachers. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for these that you have raised up for this hour right now. We're so excited, Lord, that they have made you the Lord and leader of their life. And that they're strategically placed, Lord, in the school systems where you can use them for your glory. And great things can take place, Lord. Uh, they will pray over these schools and over these students, Lord, and we do as well. The schools that they represent, the students that they represent, we ask you, God, to do a mighty work among them, God. I pray that you would give them boldness and courage to obey what you ask them to do to do what you ask them to do, when you ask them to do it. You told us in your word that we should take no thought what we should say in that hour, but the Holy Spirit will give it to us, and we're trusting that that will be the case for our teachers. You're going to speak through them in the appropriate time and moments that will bring life, hope, freedom 
to people who are in bondage. And we thank you for that. Lord, now we turn towards uh, the wall where our students are and we're praying over them, God, from nursery right on up. God, asking that you would touch each of our students, those, Lord, who are in kindergarten, those going to first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, our high school students. Lord, we're praying that you would just minister, Lord, over every one of them, our middle school students. God, move in a mighty way among them. Give them courage, God, to carry the word with them wherever they go, to not be taken uh, off track by those who might have questions. But Lord, in that moment, in that hour, you'll give them an answer through the Holy Spirit. Encourage their hearts, strengthen them in faith, and we'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Let's give our teachers a hand again. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been up here. I wasn't sure I would remember what to do, so we'll <laughs> struggle along together. We had just a great team of people. They brought such inspiring, encouraging messages, ministered to me, and I'm sure to your hearts as well. And all of that is permanently logged anytime you want to go back, and I really do encourage it. Uh, I have ministers that I listen to on a weekly basis, and there are times that I go back and listen to the message they preached three or four times. Uh, so that it will seed into my heart, and I want to encourage you along that way as well. Uh, they're very helpful. You can find all of that, gp.church forward slash sermons, and you'll find everybody in there. And you can also kind of look it up by subject or, or topic if you're uh, wanting to uh, know a little bit about uh, more about faith or about how to hear from God. You can actually put that in there, and it will direct you to messages that are centered around that. Today we're talking about ambassadors of Christ. What does it mean to be an ambassador of Christ? If you have your Bibles with you, Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're landing today. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 18. It is in, uh, of note that we realize that what is happening in these verses that we're going to read is Paul requesting the saints to pray for him. The significance of this moment in uh, this period of time uh, should not be uh, overlooked. The church was in, in, engaged in um, delivering the message of Jesus Christ, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the face of, of incredible persecution. Persecution uh, like we do not know. Um, we are seeing the beginnings of it in America. Uh, of, of some persecution against Christianity, but we have never seen anything like what these people were experiencing. There were stories of uh, Christians during this time being covered in tar and set on fire and used as torches to light sections of the city. Christians uh, were, were being uh, slaughtered, killed, they were hiding. Um, they, there, was, there was an extreme persecution. And so that backdrop for what Paul is saying here is really necessary for us to understand. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And here's how Paul says, and I want you, I've been praying for you, and here's how I want you to pray for me. And, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly 
to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. There was an article that appeared in the Daily Telegraph that I came across online um, on September 20th, 2020. And uh, it resonated with me in such a way that I bookmarked it and, and saved it. And uh, some things I want to share with you from that, that article. The heading was really what initially caught my eye. And the heading of this article read, Western Christianity isn't dying out from natural causes, it's dying of suicide. The article, I think, was written by uh, a Roman Catholic, and what he says in the article is, uh, in the beginning, is this, the church has now, for decades, been chasing after cultural acceptance by trying somehow or another to offer itself to a world that is disinterested in it in such a way that it will excite them. He goes on to write, so much of what mainstream Christians now offer is a validation of Western society, a kind of thumbs up, well done, which is stupid because unless you bring up God in the conversation, non-believers certainly won't. He quotes uh, a bishop, the Bishop uh, Rachel Twerk of Clouster, uh, and uh, he quotes her in, in, in this article. She, she says, I don't want young girls or young boys to hear us constantly refer to God as he. The bishop of Clouster said, because that might alienate people. But the writer goes on to say about the bishop, she doesn't need to worry because no one is listening. If trying to be relevant to a shallow, popular culture worked for us, then church attendance would rise and would have been rising from the 60s or even staying at a level playing field. Instead, it's plummeted. And those who do still loyally show up for communion aren't there to learn how to speak politically correct. They have come to worship the living God. And the author of this article wrote these poignant words about the ministers of my generation, another reason that it stuck with me and caused me to bookmark and save this. He wrote uh, about the ministers of my generation. He said, they're good people. Absolutely. But men and women who see themselves as curators of a faith rather than its evangelists, and who have become rather comfortable with underperformance. We blame falling numbers on everything except ourselves. But the truth of Western Christianity isn't dying, he closes out by saying, it isn't dying out by natural causes, it's committing suicide. When the Church of Jesus Christ ceases to pray, the prayer that Paul is praying here for the boldness to proclaim the gospel, the good news. When it ceases to do that, it deserves actually to fizzle out and to die. This is not a political debate. No, it's, it's about whether the church talks chiefly 
about man or chiefly about God? Whether Christians have a distinct message at all that's different from the world. Why should a non-believer care what a Christian thinks or how they live? And the answer to that question explains why Christianity persists against all the odds, the odds of persecution, uh, the odds of, of, of intellectual arguments, the odds of, of uh, a, 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 a truth that, that people believe is relative and, and not firm and solid and grounded. It just matters what I think and what I believe to be true. Churches need to be strong for people who decide at some point, and they will, that they need church and the church family in moments of celebration or, more often than not, in moments of commiseration, where people will turn to the church and look for an answer. And it is then that they will see that Christians are counterculture. I'm not talking about people who wear labels, but I'm talking about people who belong, whose lordship, uh, Jesus is lord over their lives, and, and they have surrendered to his lordship, and they are the big C church, not the little C, those who are fans or followers of Jesus Christ. And when, they, when the world gets a good look at the real church, they see Christians are living counterculture. They value differently. They serve differently, they live differently, they love differently, they grieve differently, and they give differently. And through this passage, Paul is saying to us, when our conviction rests solely in the power of Christ's name, we stand ready to boldly declare the message and the mystery of the gospel to a dying world. We tend to make the apostles out to be these spiritual supermen, and we forget about their humanity. But it's passages like this where Paul in this passage is keenly aware of his own humanity and his need for prayers of the saints, and he requests it. I need you to pray for me to be bold in the midst of all that we are facing. And writing this often from being imprisoned and in bondage. The word bold that is used in this text from the original language is a noun in verse 19. It's a verb in verse 20. In other words, Paul is literally saying in verse 19 that I may have boldness, identifying the noun. And then in verse 20, he says, so that I might speak with boldness, identifying the verb. Paul had already in chapter 2 made much of the fact that both the Jews and the Gentiles uh, had, been, had been caught up as a result of the good news of the gospel and the amazing news that both Jews and the Gentile alike can and must be saved through faith by the crucified Christ. And Paul was absolutely convinced as one of the apostles post-Pentecost that there is no other name under heaven that is given whereby men must be saved. And it was the key to his boldness, was that he was absolutely convinced. It was a deep-seated belief fueled by his experience, his understanding of God. And if you like, it resulted in this, this 
tremendous sense of boldness that he had as he began to go out and do ministry. And he asked the saints to pray for him that that might continue on a daily basis in his life. It is this deep-seated conviction that fueled the boldness in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin court and that Sanhedrin council and they were being questioned about what their authority was by which they spoke and proclaimed uh, to Jewish people a truth that they had not uh, stamped or rubber stamped or, or agreed with and they wanted to know by what measure they were coming and standing before people and proclaiming this. And it says in, in Acts chapter 4 that, that this was their testimony, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. It says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now that, that's bold. <laughs> There's two of you, there's a council, there's, there's security and guards in the room, and there's, there's, a, 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 there's boldness that's needed to be able to say the truth. And he said it was you that crucified him, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which uh, has become the cornerstone. And then Luke immediately, right after that, uh, says about what happened there. He, he, he gives us a picture of what went on in that room after they finished this bold statement to the Sanhedrin court. And here's what Luke recorded. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The boldness was so striking. And what was the basis for the boldness? The proclamation that Jesus unashamedly, this Jesus, this is who Jesus is. This Jesus, the crucified Lord, the risen King, the ascended one, was the source of their boldness. And this kind of boldness, fueled by a deep conviction and personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, were the only credentials that were needed to successfully proceed in their ministry. There are people that are waiting for uh, some other measure of credentials. But these early followers of Jesus Christ recognized that the sign of their credentials was what God had done in their own life. And the boldness that rose up in them to speak about it, the truth in love. In Acts verse 29, um, became the prayer of the believers for the apostles and for one another. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Boldness is necessary. Remember that God says to the prophets of old and often said in these reoccurring words throughout the Old Testament, Thinking about the early call of Jeremiah, they're there as well. But to all of the Old Testament prophets in one, in, prophets in one way or another, they were outnumbered and they were God's voice to a, a world. They're in, in many cases, the Jewish nation who should have been on their side, the side of the prophets, were against them when they were being led in, in a direction uh, by, the, by their enemies and, and they were rejecting God. 
And so they were often standing all by themselves. And God says to all of them in one way or another, now do not be afraid of their faces. <laughs> if you're going to have fear, fear me. But don't be afraid of what they can do to your body. Don't be afraid of what they can say about you behind the scenes. I want you to operate in a boldness that is fueled by what you know about me and what I have accomplished already. Now, what is the number one fear we have in life? The first one is the fear of death, our own mortality. It causes us to, to do all kinds of things for self-preservation, and, and that is a huge fear for our lives. So that is in place for all of these early Christians. The number two one was uh, that we, we know, all of us have experienced in one time or another, is speaking in front of a large crowd, right? I had a speech class early in college, and man, there were, there were people that would rather take a beating than stand up for five minutes in front of their classmates and say something. Can we do anything else? Is there anything we can do? Tremendous fear. I, I watched, you know, grown adults at times... You know, when I was teaching as, as a uh, professor in our uh, credentialing college in Phoenix, I watched grown adults' knees shake and knock against one another, standing up to, to speak in front of people. It's a huge fear. And both of these things are at play for Paul. And he's saying, I just want you to pray that I would have the boldness to continue to proclaim what, what Christ wants me to proclaim, the good news. You need a boldness that is tied directly to the message that he proclaims. One of the reasons that the church gives such an uncertain sound in our day and seems to be prepared to equivocate on so many different things, in other words, is the absence of a sense of boldness because of a loss of conviction about the gospel itself. Do you really believe? Who would you be so bold? Who would be so bold as to tell someone there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, unless you truly believed it? Who would go to your Jewish friends and say to them, when you read the law of Moses, there is a, a veil over your heart. Only Jesus can take that away. How unkind would that be? Unless, of course, it's true. The last thing this morning that I want to share with you and I would mention is that Paul was not a superhero. He was marked by vulnerability and accompanying humility. And when he requested prayer from those to whom he wrote, he was specific in his request that I may have the words, that I may have the freedom to deliver, that I may be able to speak the word of God boldly. And when Paul identifies himself as an ambassador in chains, Ambassadors today, as best we understand and justifiably enjoy the privileges and access and of freedom, they enjoy a measure of diplomatic immunity. 
It goes along with the territory. They are representatives of the government and the place, and therefore they speak on behalf of a government. And we recognize and respect those who are ambassadors of other governments. They are able to speak with authority from the government that they represent. You and I have seen uh, the United Nations gatherings, and we've seen these ambassadors adorned in their finery, and often it reflects the nation that they represent. And often you have seen, as I have, those who are adorned, not only in their only best, but they, they have large medallions of gold or silver around their neck. They were the ambassadors carrying the authority of the nation they represent, and they are adorned in such a way that we would easily identify that these are those sent to do the work of that nation. That they have the authority, the blessing, and we respect and, and open up to hear the message of the nation from the ambassador who stands before us. For Paul, the chains that were intended to bind him were the adornments of the government of God. He was speaking for the government of all governments, the king who is king. He was speaking for the one true God. Perhaps it is in chains that we are best adorned as the ambassadors of Christ. Perhaps in the midst of persecution, we shine like diamonds reflecting the glory of God that we represent, but never let us take a back seat. We are the ambassadors of Christ. That we pray, not only you pray for me, and I request that prayer that was asked that Paul was asking for, that you pray that I would have the boldness to proclaim the gospel in the midst of a changing world that comes to our doorsteps, facing issues every day as, as pastors and elders and leaders of the church that we have never faced before in our past. That we might have the boldness and the courage to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter what. But that we might also pray for you that where you go, that others will recognize that you are ambassadors in chains. <laughs> and that you come from the government of all governments, that you represent the God of all gods. And that you represent the king who is king. And that they may, as the Sanhedrin court for Peter and John would say, they're not the, the brightest people on the block. They don't understand all of the issues, at least from our mindset. But these people have been with God. They have been in the presence of Jesus. And therefore, we should listen to the message that they're bringing. Amen. And for me, Paul says, that the utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel to a hungry world. There's never been a time like the time that you and I are living in right now that the boldness 
Christians need to rise up with the message of Jesus Christ. The pure gospel of Jesus Christ. He loves you. He died for you. We love that part of the message that, that talks about the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God. And that is a part of the gospel message. We carry that and we tell people. But we also care, tell them about picking up the cross of Jesus Christ. And that they will carry that forward and that there will be persecution that Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you for my name's sake. All of these things will you experience for my name. That the pure message of the gospel includes both what Jesus accomplished and did on our behalf and our taking up the cross of Jesus Christ and following him daily in obedience. Asking our worship team to come back. This morning as we're coming to the table of the Lord's presence for communion, nearby you have that that represents the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. It is fitting, I think, that in our beginning to recognize our need to boldly proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, that we start at his table and remember what he accomplished. Part of the problem across the nation and across our world with the wishy-washy walk of some people in terms of their uh, relationship with God uh, what is, is, it, is it really the Lord's day or is it a day for us to do something else? And is, it, is, this value, is this a high value? Is it unimportant? Can we make it up some other time? Is that they're not utterly convinced. They're not utterly convinced that there is no other way except Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no political answer for uh, the, the struggle in our world, the, the battle that's going on that rages uh, both politically but also just the, the, the battles across nations. Reading this past week things that are happening in Afghanistan and, and all over. People being slaughtered, abused, and misused. The answer is not in having a better political system or a better political leader. The only answer is Jesus Christ, and we have to be convinced of that, people. We have to be utterly convinced. There is no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you're trying anything else, it's, it's a desperate attempt that, that is, is, is leading you nowhere but destruction. There's a way that seems right to a man, says in Proverbs, but the end of that way is destruction. There's only one way that works. And and for us to have the boldness to proclaim this, we have to be utterly convinced. So this morning, I ask you to stand with me. First, that that represents uh, the first layer there, that represents the body of the Lord Jesus. Can we take just a moment and remember what he did for us? What was done for us at Calvary? He was wounded, the Bible says, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our sin. And I'm not asking you to think about everybody else's sin, but I want, to, I want you to think for a moment about what you're most ashamed of in your life that ever happened. We all have it. 
periodically, I think God will remind us, not that, that it's, he hasn't forgiven or forgotten it, but reminds us of what he has brought us out of and how he has forgiven us and saved us. Now think about a world and all of the horrible things that have taken place. The Bible talks about in Revelations about the martyrs that are underneath the altar and their voice cries out and they're saying, God, you know, you have to avenge what took place. They, they would be people like uh, the first murder, you know, uh, Abel, his voice, uh, you know, crying out and on down the line, children that have been abused and lives taken, women who have been beaten to death by violent husbands all the horrible things and these voices are crying out to God you have to settle that you're the great judge you're the one that presents justice you have to deal with this God and then suddenly there's there's a hush at Calvary the blood of Jesus shed and as it spills down onto the ground the blood of, of all the martyrs is crying out and as the blood of Jesus spills down onto the ground it says father forgive them that voice becomes loud and crescendos and echoes through all of heaven. The great temple of heaven is shaking. The mercy seat. The veil is rent. The voices of the choir begin to sing. It is finished. It is over. It is accomplished. The perfect lamb was sacrificed. His body was broken for you. Fathers, we receive this today. As we eat of this, we do remember that sacrifice that took place on our behalf. We pray for the boldness, Lord, the courage to tell others about what you did for us and what you've done for them. We ask, Lord, that you would give us that courage and that boldness to proclaim the good news of the gospel and that we might proclaim the whole gospel, that of forgiveness, of love, of, of, of mercy, but that of taking up the cross and obedience and following you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Receive that which represents the body of the Lord. Likewise, we're so grateful for that blood, Lord, that represents so much, so much for us, uh, the forgiveness of sin, the blotting out of our sin. But Lord, also that we are now members of the body of Christ as we have received you and made you Lord and leader of our life, that the blood that runs through you runs through us by virtue of what Christ has accomplished in our surrender to his Lordship over our lives. When you look at us, you see your son, we are forgiven, we are loved, and we want that, Lord, for our world. We want that for our family members and, uh, Lord, our coworkers and God, our friends and our extended family. We want that. We want them to know you, to know forgiveness. We're not interested, Lord, in uh, building a religion, but we're interested in, in building the family of God, the kingdom of God. And so we ask God that you would help us with boldness 
to proclaim the full gospel of Jesus Christ. We receive this in remembrance of what you accomplished for us in Jesus' name.